Welcome to the How Fitting Podcast, where you'll hear from independent fashion designers and entrepreneurs about how they grow their business, making clothes that fit their customer and values. I'm your host, Allison Haynes. So today I'm joined by Elizabeth Williams of Coat Check Chicago. So welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. For those listening who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? My name is Elizabeth Williams, and I'm the designer of Coat Check Chicago, a women's outerwear company based here in Chicago. Awesome. So, yeah, let's kind of start at the beginning of things. Do you have a background in fashion before you started Coat Check Chicago? Yeah, I do. Um, I went to school for costume design when I was in college um, and worked in the world of theater um, for most of my 20s. Um, And then uh, sort of in my late 20s, early 30s, I moved to New York um, and went back to school for fashion design. I studied at Parsons School of Design in New York. um, And then from there, I had a couple of jobs um, in the fashion industry in New York um, before moving back to Chicago, um, where I uh, started a family and took on a career in teaching in fashion design. So I was actually uh, an educator and teacher for about 10 years uh, prior to launching my own brand. Oh, wow. So you've had like experience and kind of like a whole bunch of different angles of of fashion. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're all related, um, you know, in my mind, but it has definitely been a meandering path um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, where I started and where I am today. Yeah. So like what made, what made you kind of make the decision to move to New York and go back to school to study fashion when you were already in, you know, the theater space, which, you know, it's fashion, but for a slightly different, you know, use? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there was a couple reasons. Um, one had been that I had always really wanted to be in fashion. Um, and so even while I was working in costumes and in theater, I still had this sort of nagging feeling that I wanted to work in and experience the fashion industry. Um, the other thing um, was that I was really becoming growingly frustrated with being um really poorly paid um, (laughs) and really poorly supported by the local theater um, community, which just unfortunately doesn't pay seamstresses um, much of a living wage, uh, nor does it give them really a dependable income. Part of the problem in working in costumes or stage design or any type of um, creative in terms of the theatrical arts is that, you know, you work up until a show goes up. And then once the show goes up, you're pretty much left in a lurch and you're unemployed. So Mm -hmm. my lifestyle at the time was, um, which was fine for being in my twenties, you know, it was that I would, you know, work um, rigorous hours up until the launch of a show and then move on directly to the next show right after that you know, work rigorous hours, moving up to the launch of that show and so on and so forth. So, and then of course there were always gaps sometimes in between shows where I would worry, you know, like, oh, where's my next paycheck coming from? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, were you working at yeah. like one theater or did you kind of, did you sew for like multiple different theaters? No. So I was, a, I was, I worked freelance. I was a freelance okay. um, stitcher and pattern maker. Um, so that was both good and bad because I was able to, you know, go work at uh, the Goodman Theater for a month and then go work for the Steppenwolf Theater for a month. And so I could kind of follow those shows and that calendar around. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, none of it was really full time. So none of it came with the benefits of health insurance and job security and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, those jobs do exist in theater. They're just really few and far between. There are some staff positions you'll find um, in costume departments at local theater companies, but there's usually one or two. And then the vast majority of the work is done through freelancers through overhire work, which is what I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually worked at a community theater for like during the summertime in college. Um, oh, so you're familiar as well. Yeah. 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 So which was perfect for me because it's like I only worked I only worked during the summer when they did a whole bunch of it was an outdoor theater. Um, and yeah. And that's a big thing too, right? It's summer stock and a lot of artisans, they go do summer stock at like Oregon Shakespeare. I did a summer once in Poughkeepsie, New York at Vassar. And so, yeah, that's part of it as well. A lot of people are very nomadic and they mm-hmm. just, you know, they travel around the country in some cases from show to show, job to job. Yeah, yeah. So you were kind of tired of that lifestyle and wanted to get, like move into the more, you know, everyday fashion and, and get a job there. So what was that kind of transition like? Because knowing having kind of started out also doing costumes and then working in fashion, like there's a lot of crossover, but there's a lot of differences too. Yeah. um, It was, you know, I felt like my background in costume prepared me in a way that others weren't prepared in. So um, at the end of the day, I was really grateful for that experience. Um, I went into my program knowing a lot more about fit and pattern making and sewing. Mm -hmm. I bet. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's all, yeah, you're, you're custom fitting everything to the actors. Yeah. Yeah, I remember being in my sewing class and, you know, sewing up a, a sample pretty easily and my sewing teacher being like, oh, everybody come take a look at what she's doing, <laughs> you know, and maybe you could help me teach the class, you know, so I, I was very prepared when it came to sewing and pattern making and all of that stuff came quite naturally to me at that point, given all my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, But yet there was other things that were completely new to me, Um, you know, marketing and sales and and just some of the nuances between the fashion industry and and costuming and how things are cut differently and prepared differently because um, in in fashion, obviously you're doing everything for the masses, whereas in costume, it's really more custom and made for one person. So the construction Mm -hmm. techniques were a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, costumes are like made to be altered and made specific functions to look good from like far away on a stage uh, and not always, you know, up close necessarily. Like I remember like doing different closures if there needs to be a quick change. It's like you wouldn't do that in a ready to wear garment, but for stage, you needed the functionality. Exactly. Yeah. And so as a result, they're kind of 
in many ways built as as they go like a lot of times you'll you'll slowly work on building the costume from start to finish whereas i think in fashion it's lots of it's lots of quick iterations over and over again till you mm -hmm. get to the finished product so um yeah yeah, yeah that's a good it's way of describing it different, but um it is interesting to see where those differences are mm-hmm so what kind of job, like once you graduated from your fashion degree, uh, what kind of job did you get in New York in fashion? Was yeah, it again, so, like a pattern maker type role or were you more in the design department then? So I got hired um, in a design department. Um, so at the time there was a new brand that was being launched called Martin and Osa. And it was created by the folks at American Eagle Outfitters. So okay. it was around the same time that like J. Crew was launching Madewell, um, mm -hmm. and all of the big companies were starting to kind of uh, launch these smaller subset brands. And so American Eagle at the time was launching Airy, their lingerie line, and they were also launching this Martin and Osa. Um, so I was able to get a job at that company um, when they were just starting out and they didn't, they literally didn't even have a name for it yet. When I was hired, it was, oh, wow. yeah, it was called the new concept and we had to, <laughs> you know, sign paperwork that we wouldn't disclose what the name was, even though I didn't even know what the name was. <laughs> um, and so I really got to get in on that job, uh, as I was saying, from the ground up where they were trying to figure out what they were gonna name it and what the logo was going to look like and what the concept of the brand was going to be. Um, and it was a really fun and exciting time because they had also poached designers from other companies, you know, designers that had really great careers at other companies were hired and brought on to work at this company um, to really get it going. So I learned a lot from some really amazing people during that time. I was hired as an intern, um, but I had just, you know, kind of worked hard um, to make myself indispensable. So they, they ultimately kept me around and I stayed there for um, a couple of years and really enjoyed it. Yeah, so were you able to kind of design the initial like pieces for the brand? Like, were you involved in that process then? Yeah, so um, since I had such a strong background as a seamstress, um, one of the designers that I worked for was like, hey, you know, why don't you sit down at the sewing machine and create a couple of mock-ups, you know, for like surface, embe surface embellishment treatments for some of these tops we're working on. And so I sat down and, and worked up a couple of mock-ups. I had this great book um, at the time. Gosh, and I'm scrambling. Oh, Fabric Manipulation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have that one. It's a really great one. I do have that one. Such a great one, right? Um, and I was, you know, just going through the pages of the books and getting inspired and coming up with like different uh, surface embellishments and mocking those up. And she really loved them. And so uh she she kept me on I think you know for that reason is that I was good with a sewing machine and I could come up with these little mock-ups and these little ideas that would express um the idea a little bit better 
um, at the time my drawings weren't all that great. So, you know, sewing was one of my skills when it came to communicating. So, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it was fun kind of being the resident seamstress in the group. You know, <laughs> everybody had a computer at their desk, but I had a computer and a sewing machine. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it put me at an advantage in some ways. Yeah, yeah. That's something I want to ask you about is like, because a lot of designers are not that great at sewing. So um, do you feel like it really kind of helped you being able to sew to, you know, communicate your, your designs? And yeah, I mean, you just said it kind of gave you maybe a leg up against other people because you had that skill that they didn't. Yeah, it definitely did in my case. I felt like it did. Um, and then the other thing which I found interesting, you know, again, comparing working in fashion to working in costumes is then we'd step into the fitting room and I was surprised because in the fashion industry, when you go into the fitting room, or at least where I worked, um, the garments were all manufactured in China. The uh, technical designers would more or less take pictures of the garments and make notes as to like where things weren't fitting. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because as a costume designer, when you step into a fitting room and something's not fitting, you take out scissors and, and, mm -hmm. and you start, you work. You make it fit, yeah. You make it fit, yeah. And so um, it kind of opened my eyes to how garments were being manufactured overseas and really how much people had lost touch with how things are made. Um, mm -hmm. When you're standing in a fitting room with technical designers, I was kind of expecting to be wowed, you know, and, and really see them go to town and make these garments fit. But again, I was surprised to see, nope, they're just kind of taking pictures and emailing those pictures off to their counterparts in China and pointing out areas that didn't fit and you know, hoping that they would be adjusted that way. Interesting, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, as a pattern maker myself, it's like, I'm not afraid to, in a fitting, pin and cut, and which ha I haven't been able to do as much as past year because all fittings have been virtual, but oh, right. it's like having, I, I feel like even just having the knowledge and the background in, in sewing and pattern making to be able to, you know, look at a garment, not to say, oh, that doesn't fit, but like, I can understand why it doesn't fit and how I need to adjust the pattern to make it fit. And that's probably kind of what you were noticing too. It's like, why don't we just make it fit right now? Like why, you know, why leave it up to the factory to figure out what's, what's gone wrong here? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I applaud that you've been getting that done virtually, but I'm sure that like your years of doing it in person and like actually touching the garment and cutting it and, and uh, pinning it, you know, that informs you today. Right. And in terms oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now you can look at a picture and now you can say, Oh, that, you know, armhole needs to go up or that mm -hmm. needs to do this or that. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think people get that experience unless they really get their um, hands into the garment and really touch it and feel it and and um, play with it. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. I don't think I could have just jumped into doing a virtual fitting without the years of, yeah, playing around with the garment and just pinning, tweaking, seeing how things worked. Um, 
I think it's just doing it enough. Like you kind of identify as I'm sure, you know, like the problem areas of, oh, you know, like it's too tight to move your arms forward in this jacket. Like it might be the width of the sleeve cap or it might be the cross the back or the shape of the armhole, but it's probably one of those things, you know? Right. And so you kind of, you kind of know just from experience, like where to look on the pattern to fix right. it. Right. And it is troubleshooting, you know, sometimes you are kind of guessing and saying, oh, I think it's this, let's try this and see. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so it's not always, um, you know, I, I feel like I don't always have a clear right answer. I think a lot of times it's just like, oh, let's see, let's try this. Let's Mm -hmm. move this here and change this here and see what happens. Um, And then if that doesn't work, let's try, you know, something else. Um, But yeah, I think you have to be kind of willing and open to fail and Mm -hmm. try things out, (laughs) um, you know, in order to actually get somewhere with it. So yeah, that's all super interesting is like, as you noticed working at that brand, like how things were different from costuming. So how did you get, you said you moved back to Chicago and then how did, how did you get to starting Coachek Chicago? Yeah. So, um, as I was saying, I, I got a teaching job in Chicago. Um, and so I've been, I was teaching, uh, part-time at a local art school, Um, and then also being a mom as well. Um, but again, you know, as always, I sort of had this sort of sinking feeling that I really wanted something more. I wanted to have my own line and I really wanted to continue to pursue, you know, my goals, my personal goals. Um, and around that time that I was kind of flirting with the idea of starting a line, um, I had a coat that I loved that I had worn for probably 10 years straight that was starting to die on me. I mean, like I had just worn this thing till it was threadbare. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was really nothing I could do to repair it or uh, help it at that point. It just, I needed a new coat. Mm -hmm. So, um, So I started to look and see what was available in the market Um, And I was just really disappointed with a lot of the quality that was out there. Um, A lot of the coats that were in my price range um, were just really poorly made, um, cheap fabrics. A lot of them were made, um, you know, in places that I suspected, you know, were probably sweatshops. Um, So I was really trying to find something that was ethically made or made in the USA or fair trade. and I was trying to find something that had some great quality, you know, some great bones about it, something that could replace that coat that I had in my closet for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I just kept coming up short. And then I thought, well, I'll just make one myself because I, I have the skill set and I know I can make something that's nicer than anything I can afford. Um, and so that's how I went about it. And it was through that process that I was like, hey, maybe there's something to this. Um, I started to get some compliments on my piece. Um, One funny story is that I actually got a compliment from a coat check girl one night when I was out. So that's part of where the name came from is, uh, you know, I was really flattered that this girl that looks at coats all night long Mm -hmm. my coat and she was like, oh, this is a really nice coat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so fun. Yeah, I thought, well, I must be onto something if the coat check girl likes my coat. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, that's, that's how the brand started. Cool. So kind of what year was this again that you started coaching? Oh gosh. I mean, I think it might've been 2015, 2016. Okay. It took me a couple years, um, of development before I really launched. Mm -hmm. uh, it was something I worked on, you know, probably for about two years straight, you know, and my close friends knew I was working on it. Oh, when are you going to launch the coats? You know, <laughs> going with the coats. So I'm like, not there yet, not there yet. Um, so it took me a while to get it off the ground. Um, but I believe it's been about five years now that I've been in business. Nice. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, so were you doing all the pattern making and the development and design? Like, are you doing it all yourself for your brand? Yeah. Do you have so, the skills? So, yeah. So to this day, I do my own patterns and I create my own samples. I, I, I'm the sample maker and the pattern maker here. Um, I do have everything manufactured here locally in Chicago. So I don't make my own production. I draw the line there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and coats, especially well-made ones. I mean, even if you're a fast seamstress, like it, it takes, you know, number of hours to sew that together. Oh yeah. They're really labor intensive. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, I just, I would not be able to do everything else I do if I was sewing my own production. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and plus, you know, the seamstresses that I work with here in Chicago are amazing. Like their quality is better than mine any day of the week. And I think I've got really great quality. Mm -hmm. um, so it just says a lot about the people I work with that they, they do such beautiful work. Um, and so, yeah, so I have my production uh, sewn locally here in Chicago by a handful of uh, local seamstresses. Um, I do my own pattern making. I do every once in a while I'll outsource or um, I have a friend who's also a really great pattern maker. So if I, if, if I'm just like really sick of looking at something, <laughs> I'll call her up and I'm like, oh, can you just take this off my hands? Like I can't look at it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so every once in a while I'll outsource some things when I'm just feeling stuck. Um, I also outsource, um, I work with a great girl here in town who does my digitizing and grading. Mm -hmm. So I don't do any of that myself. Um, and then of course, you know, I outsource all the other things that I can't do, like photography and modeling and mm -hmm. uh, things like that. So I work with a lot of great independent contractors here in the city, um, but I am still like a one person employee. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. It's so nice to be able to have like a network of people to go to for those different things. It's like, if you don't, you know, you don't need a photographer full time, but you know, when you do to be able to work with like a nice one. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and you develop great working relationships with these people too. You know, the photographer mm -hmm. I've been using, I think she's done like, you know, she's been shooting for me for the last four years. So now when we get together, it's just really easy because she knows you know, what I like. And um, so we have built a really great working relationship that way. Awesome. What made you like from the initial, um, you know, make yourself a coat? How did you decide, like, I'm going to turn this into an actual business? Because I feel like this happens a lot to 
you know, designers who become then fashion brand owners is they see a need, like they personally have a need for a certain type of fashion or clothing that they can't find. But then it it's not as easy, I think, of a jump to then make it a brand. Like I, I don't want to skip over, gloss over, like that's a big decision and a lot of research too of turning it into a business instead of just making a coat for yourself. Yeah, 100%. And um, I'll be the first to admit that that's where I probably had the biggest learning curve. Um, I'm sure there's um, other designers that you've spoken with and uh, might even be listening now that, you know, they were business people first and designers Mm -hmm. second. And I think those people actually have a huge advantage um, because I had to learn the whole business side and marketing side and sales. Um, and I'm still learning that today. Um, you know, I was pretty naive when I started out and I had this sort of field of dreams mentality of like, if you build it, they will come, uh, <laughs> which isn't true. <laughs> so um, I know, but you hear that phrase so often. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's no, it's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to uh, you have to ask people to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I've had to really learn, you know, how to put myself out there in terms of sales and marketing, and um, how to get how to reach out to boutiques, and uh, you know how to interact with customers. Um, you know, as a designer, you know, my intuition is usually to to withdraw and uh, work alone and be creative, but really Mm -hmm. you're a business owner, you know, you have to be a salesperson and you have to put yourself out there and you have to interact with people. Um, So that's been something I've really had to learn, but it's also been the greatest joy because so many of my customers are just the sweetest, nicest people in the world. And, um, and it's just made me appreciate like how good people really are. I think I was really afraid that people were going to be mean and nasty and, uh, you know, shoot me down. But I've actually had the opposite experience where I've been pleasantly surprised by how supportive people really are. Oh, that's great. It's always good to have a, a, an experience better than what you expect. Yeah. So with coats, um, and I'm also like a huge fan of outerwear and coats and make my own coats as well I have always loved just kind of the whole aesthetic of a nice coat but they are pieces that tend to be you know a little higher priced and you know a good coat like you said will last 10 years so it's not something that you're like rebuying every season so yeah what are kind of the challenges or ways that I mean because you just you just have coats in your line so how do you kind of continue that you know create you know customer loyalty and find new customers to you know buy coats because it's not something most people probably don't have a dozen coats in their closet you know yeah totally um and that was something that I was a little nervous about too right because Mm -hmm. you kind of need to have repeat buyers, right? Like on one hand, I, I this, this is part of what I love about coats is that um, they're fairly sustainable items in that you don't need to keep buying them over and over again, especially if you have a really nice well-made one. And so I didn't want to be contributing to all of the fast fashion trends and I didn't want to be 
in the business of having to keep giving people more and more and more. Um, you know, I kind of like the idea that they can come to me for one thing and, and then hopefully not come to me again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I will say I do have a lot of repeat customers, um, which is something I didn't expect. And it's very flattering, but a lot of the women come back to me because like they bought my raincoat and then they want to buy a wool overcoat um, mm-hmm. or they bought a blazer and then they, you know, see a bomber style that they like. So um, I do find that I do get repeat customers in the sense that um, I have yet to figure out, you know, sort of like the, the solve all weather solution coat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's usually a coat for a different need, you know, a good spring coat, a good fall coat. Mm-hmm. Um, which you need in Chicago. Which you need in Chicago because, you know, I think people think of Chicago weather as just always being like negative 10. But in reality, like most days are like in the 30s, 40s. Um, so a lot of my coats are really gator, catered, sorry, to to like a, you know, moderately cold day. And then I've got, um, you know, some other pieces for like when it's rainy. And, and then of course, yes, I do have, you know, that, you know, frigid negative degree cold coat day. Um, mm-hmm. But I try to, yeah, provide different coats for different situations because the weather here, like everywhere else, you know, really does fluctuate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up, um, in Rockford, Illinois, actually. So I'm familiar with kind of the Chicago (laughs) weather and yeah. Yeah. You kind of get a little bit of everything and then a lot of wind if you're like between the buildings. Yeah. And, and it's funny, even this past year, I've, I've had a couple of customers crop up here and there from the South, you know, people in Texas and uh, South Carolina and whatnot have ordered a few pieces from me and, you know, they'll order like the lighter weight coats, but that will be their winter coat, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I think most people in the United States do need a coat at some point in the year, um, regardless of where they live, but yes, Mm -hmm. more than others. Yeah. So what inspires the design of your coats? Sure. Yeah. So I do, um, you know, as a former costume designer, I am really inspired by fashion history and vintage fashion. And um, I do look a lot to, you know, old, uh, you know, vintage styles when I'm looking at inspiration. Um, But I do also look, I really love like modern architecture and restaurant design, interior design. So um, I also look a lot to like modern um, interior and exterior design. So it's a couple things, um, but I do, I'm always thinking about if what I'm designing is going to have the potential to be a classic, um, because again, I don't want someone to feel like they have to buy a coat year after year because of some trend. You know, I, I would mm-hmm. still like my coats to be stylish great statement pieces that are you know aren't boring um but i also uh would like them to have some longevity to them Mm -hmm. yeah cool and i mean kind of that vintage look i feel like there's more of that like great tailoring and overcoats you know perfectly matched to the outfit in you know 50s and 60s especially for men and women um kind of that that classic look 
So I bet there's a whole wealth of, of inspiration from those decades. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really endless. I mean, there's so much good inspiration out there. Um, and I think, you know, if something does really stand the test of time, like that's, that's a good indicator right there. So if I can look at a, a vintage uh, garment and say, oh, that still really holds up today, then I think it's worth like exploring it. And, you know, I try to put a modern spin on everything I do, but um, I try to look and see if something's really gonna hold the test of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I have a question kind of like how on how you style coats or your thoughts on styling and wearing a coat. Cause I find personally, sometimes it's like the coat is the statement piece, you know, even if it's a classic design, like it's kind of the showstopper of the outfit in a way versus like there are other people or other uses where it's like, I need a coat. It doesn't matter what I'm wearing you know, with it, but the coat is more of a functional item and it needs to like match everything. So it should just be all black or whatever. Um, but kind of how, how do you personally, and then when you're designing, look at kind of the styling of your coats and whether they're, they're the statement piece or whether they're like the classic staple, I guess. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, I think I probably do both you know I think I do occasionally just for the fun of it design like a really fun statement piece that um you know you really have to kind of think about what you're wearing with it you know it's good for a black cocktail dress kind of thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and then there are other pieces that I think okay this is the the day-to-day go-to coat um so yeah I do think it definitely depends on the occasion but I do think a coat should match an occasion. Um, you know, there's some, you know, I get really, I feel like when a woman dresses up for like a nice occasion, like a wedding or a nice evening out, um, I always think it's a shame when she has on a beautiful dress and then covers it up with like a North face parka. Uh, (laughs) So I think, you know, your coat should match your occasion. So if you're going out for a nice, night out, you know, it's time to put on a nice coat. And if you're running to the grocery store, then yeah, there's a coat that's suitable for that occasion too. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I think your coat, a coat says a lot about a person. And I think it's an important statement piece because it is the first thing that everyone sees, right? Like it's our Mm -hmm. way of communicating with the world at large. So I think in terms of fashion statements, your coat is probably the most important statement you can make. So for me, I think it's important that a coat reflects a person's personality. Um, It makes them feel good. It makes them feel confident. It keeps them warm. It keeps them protected. Um, But that it's really that outward expression of who they are and how they feel in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. It is really the first impression of like your outfit and who, who you are when you're walking into a space. Yeah. Cool. So what are, I know you've talked a little bit about kind of like the quality and, you know, like with your coat that you had for 10 years and not being able to find the quality in newer things. So what are some of the ways that you build that quality and like longevity into your coat? 
That's a great question. So um, a lot of it has to do with the fabrics I choose. Um, I don't really, I try to shy away from synthetics, although that being said, sometimes a synthetic fiber is good for um, weather circumstances, you know, like waterproof mm -hmm. fabrics and whatnot. Those tend to be better if they're made from synthetics. Um, but in terms of like my wool coats, like I really looked for quality fabric that's gonna hold up. Um, I do a lot with the insides of the coat in terms of, uh, you know, securing them, making sure they're reinforced, um, you know, things along that side in terms of like the construction and the tailoring um, mm -hmm. to give them integrity. Um, but I would say, it's really, it really comes down to the fabric. That was the one thing I noticed when I looked at other coats on the market was that um, more often designers were choosing, um, you know, cheap fabrics that weren't going to hold up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. Yeah, so, and I, I saw, and you, you've talked about how all your, um, Coats are manufactured in Chicago. Um, why is made in the USA important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, for me as a seamstress, it's really about preserving my craft um, mm -hmm. and making it so that this line of work is something that is always available to people here in the United States. Um, you know, I made a living as a seamstress, you know, a meager one, <laughs> but I did make a living as a seamstress, you know, for close to a decade myself. Um, and, and I would like others to be able to say, to do the same, to be able to make a living, um, in this profession. Um, I also like how, um, from a sustainability standpoint, you know, I think when you're not importing, and exporting garments all around the world, um, you know, that does something as well to reduce greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. uh, one exciting thing that I've got coming up is that I'll be working with um, a U.S. mill this year. I'm working with American Woolen, and um, I am going to be using one of their wool cashmere blended uh, fabrics for two of my coats, and I'm really excited about it because I'm supporting one of the few remaining wool mills here in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, by working with them. And and when I have my fabric shipped from them, it's really just coming to me, um, you know, from the East Coast, uh, as opposed to, you know, Europe or Japan or China or somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. And the fiber themselves also um, is coming, American woolen, works with a, a vast majority of their fibers come from sheep right here in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so I think, you know, there's a part of sustainability that often gets overlooked in that, you know, we have the materials that we need right here in this country. We don't need to import them. Um, you know, we can take advantage of the resources we have right here as a way of kind of combating greenhouse gases. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, I didn't know there was still a lot of U.S. fibers for wool here. Yeah, because there are, sometimes it, it seems like there are certain fibers where it's like the production and, and the raw materials, you know, production is gone from us locally. 
you know, you can only source it from other places sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I do, um, in speaking with them, I believe it's like 70% of their fibers come from the U.S. still. They said they do import occasionally from South America, um, but otherwise the fibers are from here in the U.S. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah, how is, um, now we're kind of talking about sourcing and fabrics a little bit. I know that's another thing that um, tends to trip up a lot of people is finding the right materials. Did you find it was difficult um, when you were, you know, first starting your brand especially, but now even sourcing new materials to find the quality and the type of fabric and the fibers that you were looking for? Oh, it's so hard. It's the hardest part. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Um, the first couple seasons collections I did, um, I was able to source some really beautiful wool from Italy. Um, and it was great and I love it. Um, but again, I was always kind of really wanting to find U.S. Um, wool for the reasons mm -hmm. that I mentioned. Um, so it's been really hard. It's been really hard to find um, any remaining U.S. wool mills, um, there are, you know, there's still some American manufacturing when it comes to cotton, when it comes to knits, um, but mm -hmm. wool and wovens in particular is really hard to track down. Um, and then, you know, you couple that with being a small designer, you know, who my minimums are small. So mm -hmm. I don't have the purchasing power of a larger brand where I can say, oh, I need a thousand yards, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> at most I'm, you know, I'm ordering like 60 yards or something at a time. Like, so, um, yeah, it's hard to find people that are willing to work with small designers, um, mm -hmm. you know, on a scale that's affordable to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, but it seems like you've been able to still make it work and I, I think I was, I was looking at your site. It's like for a high quality coat, like, your price point is still, I think, fairly, it's not cheap, but it's, it's still affordable for a timeless coat that's going to last a long time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're, they're funny because, you know, it's definitely less expensive than say like a Maximara coat, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but they're more expensive than, you know, a J crew coat. Um, so they do kind of fall in that middle, like bridge, uh, mm -hmm. price point there. Um, and, you know, I think a part of my struggle has also been explaining to people that since they are sewn in the United States and made in the United States, uh, that does come with a higher price tag because we're paying workers, you know, in American wages, um, you know, living wages. So, I mean, obviously there's going to be a price discrepancy between something that's sewn in the USA and something that is, um, you know, made in another country. Um, but I do think that my customer appreciates that things were made locally and wants to support, you know, local makers. So um, ultimately I haven't had too much of a pushback on it. That's good. Yeah, a, lo a lot of the times it is just that, you know, making sure to educate the customer and explain, you know, why, why it's priced the way it is, why the materials are, you know, are high quality, you know, what makes them high quality, um, and it kind of show the value of the product. Um, I think oftentimes it, it is, it does take a kind of a lot of that, especially for small, you know, ethical, sustainable businesses to 
really show the true value of their, you know, what they have to offer. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes the value is, you know, it, it's more than just the piece itself. You know, sometimes the value is also that you're supporting your local community and your local economy um, and you're preserving, you know, uh, sewing and fashion right here in the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, is there a lot of manufacturing in Chicago that, you know, is available still? I, I do know of some places there, so I know there is some, but have you found that it is kind of dying off or, you know, um, mo- uh, moving overseas? I feel pretty fortunate that I've been able to find like a nice thriving little manufacturing sector here in Chicago. Um, I haven't seen that, you know, too many of, too many of the manufacturers that I work with are shutting down or, or hurting in any way. So no, um, you know, I think there's been, yeah, there's been a steady stream of, of designers, Uh, not only from Chicago, but I even know like designers in California and New York sometimes will have their items produced here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So um, I do think they're fairly well supported. um, But I also don't want to like, um, I don't want to sleep on that, you know, like Mm -hmm. I don't want (laughs) to ease up on that support. um, Because I think if we don't support them, then they will go elsewhere. Mm hmm. Yeah, so true. And yeah, as as someone who also knows how to sew, like I, I totally am with you that like I want that to be a skill that people still continue to learn and use um, even in our local economies. So yeah, yeah, it's it's so good for many reasons. Like it's a it's like really therapeutic, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's hard like it, it's a it's a challenging profession that, um, you know, you have to use your brain, you have to troubleshoot. And I think the sad thing is that it's become associated with this like easy menial task that anybody can do. So therefore, Mm -hmm. why don't we just uh, farm it out? Um, And I actually think that there's a case to be made for no, like this is challenging work um, that requires really skilled people just yeah, like definitely. the really skilled people we have right here in our neighborhood. So, um, you know, why not provide them with these great jobs? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. So I saw you were recently featured in, was it New York Times quoted you? Yeah, they quoted me. I was so excited. Um, yeah. Uh, so how did that come about? You know, I think just luck. Um, I am on Instagram. I don't have like a huge following by any means, but you know, I'm there. And um, there's a reporter from the New York Times that um, I guess she was following me on Instagram is what she said. Um, And she was doing a story on um, coats. And in particular, this was kind of like post inauguration. Mm -hmm. uh, A lot of good coat fashion there. Yeah, because everybody was really talking about the coats from the inauguration. So um, she called me up and, and yeah, I almost died. I couldn't believe <laughs> it. Um, and we talked for a good long time about outerwear and coats and fashion and film and vintage fashion and where things were headed. And, um, it was a really great conversation and, and she ended up quoting me in the article. 
and I was just so flattered and so thrilled um, that she even thought of me. So yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, that is really exciting. Um, so yeah, what, what were kind of your thoughts on Coats at the inauguration and um, even with kind of what your take on the future of outerwear is, you know, I think everyone's trying to figure out what is fashion going to look like this year and in the coming years after the pandemic. Um, so kind of what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was such a great, you know, moment for outerwear. Um, and it was, it really spoke to the power, I think, of fashion and, and even the power of outerwear and that, you know, it tells a story and it mm -hmm. can something about what you're thinking or what you're feeling and I think you know all the bright colors we saw that day you know people were trying to share something you know they were trying to say something and um, and the world noticed you know as a result and I think that at its best um, fashion has a power to do that and mm -hmm. I, I think those are the best moments that it has you know um, definitely fashion has some worst moments too right <laughs> when it comes to the way, you know, the ethical treatment of humans and animals and everything that goes into the making of them, those can be some, you know, not so great moments that we all have to do a better job of um, taking a look at and improving. Um, but that shouldn't in any way, you know, discount that there's a power in fashion, there's a power to communicate um, and, and sort of propel change forward. So I get really excited when I see things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, I feel like coats have a unique way of, they're simultaneously like very polished and tailored, you know, like a, a wool coat. Um, and they also feel like you're just wrapped in a blanket at the same time. So it's like you feel all like cozy and warm and, but then you, like you're not sacrificing on style at all in order to feel that. So I, I, to me, like coats kind of have the best of both worlds there. Um, that's one of the reasons why I just really love it, like a tailored wool coat. So it is exciting to see more like colorful options and yeah, just, you know, especially yeah. in the wintertime, snuggle up in a coat when you're going out somewhere. I agree. I think to this day that was like one of my favorite customer reviews that I've ever received was uh, a woman who purchased one of my coats was like I feel like I'm wrapped in a warm bathrobe at home but I look so <laughs> sophisticated mm -hmm. and cheek on the outside which I felt like that was a win because I my favorite thing to wear at home is a warm cozy bathrobe so mm -hmm. I think if you can feel like comfortable and warm and safe and then still look amazing like that's a win mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with plenty of pockets that's always my go-to uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you need pockets for carrying stuff and yeah I love just how functional a coat is you know because it does serve a need you know there's there's a truth mm -hmm. to keep you warm and protected and and safe and and be functional have you know have your items about you so um, I love kind of balancing the functionality of a coat with the aesthetics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So cool. So um, what is something that you are most proud of in your brand so far? Oh, gosh. Um, 
I just think I'm just proud that I'm still here and still learning and still growing. Um, I've just learned so much along the way. Um, and yeah, that's it. I'm just proud that I'm, I'm still keeping at it and I'm still learning and, and every year it grows a little bit more than the year before. Nice. Yeah, that is a big accomplishment. It's like, don't overlook the, you know, it may seem like a small thing, but yeah, like perseverance and slow, slow growth is, is quite the accomplishment. So congratulations. Yeah, it's a hard thing when you're an independent designer. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners, because I think you have a lot of designers that listen, mm -hmm. um, you know, can agree that there's a roller coaster that goes with this, that some days you're feeling great. And then other days you're feeling like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have to ride out those highs and lows and that can be really hard. Yeah. What have you kind of done to continue through that or and build on that perseverance? Um, you know, I think I've just gotten used to it. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I think I've just gotten used to um, that, that there are good times and there are bad times, you know, and that you just have to, every day you just have to pick up and keep going. So, um, I don't know that there's any tricks to it, just that it gets easier with time. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I have one more question that I ask everyone at the end of the interview, which is if you could communicate one value to the world through, in your case, the coats that you design, what would it be? I think if there's one thing I would like to communicate through my coats um, would just be to, you know, buy less, choose well, in the words of Vivian Westwood, um, that it's okay to kind of invest in yourself um, from time to time on pieces that you think are important to you and pieces that you think matter and will stay with you for the long haul. Um, mm -hmm. To just slow down and take time uh, when making those types of purchasing decisions. Yeah, yeah, so true. Um, well, this has been so fun to talk to you and hear more about Coachek Chicago and your your journey with that. Um, where can people find more about you and Coachek Chicago online? Yeah, so uh, my website is Um, And I'm also on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Pinterest. And yeah, you can find me any of those places. Awesome. I will include links to those in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, it was so nice chatting with you. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Haynes, and I hope you join me again for the next episode of How Fitting.